Hello, and welcome to the Her and Him podcast. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. And when two theologians get married, what you get is a podcast. Well, this is our 51st episode of the Her and Him podcast, which is, is one more than 50. Yes, we are very good at math. For those of you at home who are counting. And by the time this episode is released, we will be in the middle of the month of June. Yeah, and June has become a very popular month. Um, that's because we... Would... Because school is out. Well, that. Because For summer most... is starting. No. It is because it is Pride Month. Yes, the month of June is LGBTQ Pride Month. And that means, if nothing else, that every major corporation in America has changed the logo on their social media accounts to reflect a version of it that has a rainbow, correct? Yeah, I think we're seeing it a lot more this year. Every year it seems to get bigger and bigger and grow in terms of, I guess, mainstream popularity. And we see people supporting it in bigger ways each year. And I think more people support it year after year. At least they are making a public statement of their support of Pride Month. Right. Yeah. And so because of that, I was kind of curious about it. And so I started doing a little bit of research on the history of Pride Month. And I didn't realize that Pride Month has actually been around for a really long time. And it dates back as far as the summer of 1969. And it was in connection to the Stonewall riots that happened that month. Had you known about the Stonewall riots before this? No. I had... This was my first time hearing about the Stonewall riots. Yeah, I had heard about the Stonewall riots or the Stonewall protests uh, before doing this research for this podcast. Uh, but I didn't realize that that was kind of the genesis of Pride Month. And for those of you who don't know what the Stonewall protests or demonstrations were, this was uh, a gay and lesbian demonstration uh, that really erupted into a violent altercation with the police at the Stonewall Inn in Manhattan in June of 1969. Uh, and that kind of happened in response to a police raid. And it ended up being this watershed moment in what would become the LGBTQ civil rights movement. And that's really what is memorialized every single June. And it, so it's been around for many, many decades. Uh, but it took a couple of decades to really start to gain widespread popularity. And uh, in 1999 and in 2000, President Clinton uh, memorialized June as Pride Month, as did President Obama and now President Biden. Uh, it kind of shows like all the way up to the White House beginning at the, the turn of the millennia. Uh, it has become much more popular. And really in the last... I don't know, I'd say three to five years, it has really gone like really, really mainstream. And it feels like uh, increasingly so, right? Uh, year over year, it feels like even two years ago to last year to now, each year it's getting bigger and bigger in terms of its uh, cultural acknowledgement, uh, cultural awareness, and cultural support. Yeah, I've seen a lot more statements about it more people saying that they are supporting it and it's just become one of those things that in the month of June you either show your support or you show that you don't support like either way you're making some type of a statement because of how large it's become right exactly 
So I think as Christians, this conversation about pride and the LGBTQ movement and LGBTQ rights, it has a lot of layers to it. And so I thought that we would talk about that on the podcast today because uh, I know probably a lot of uh, listeners are probably thinking about it in questioning it what like what should my response be in the midst of this um it's certainly a question that has arisen in churches uh, as people are coming to their church leaders asking about this um as it becomes this real uh cultural inflection point and so we thought it would be a good idea to kind of dive into some of the layers of this conversation it's a very um loaded mm. and complex conversation right with people who are really have strong opinions on either side, and rightfully so. It's an important identity for a lot of people. And so we thought it important to uh, understand it from a Christian perspective, uh, just for all the layers and nuances of it. Right. And the first thing we want to address, and we want to make it first because of how important it is, is that it's necessary for us as Christians to recognize and collectively repent of the violence and trauma that has been inflicted on the LGBTQ community through decades, all in the name of Jesus and the Christian church. And we need to recognize there has been trauma and pain through words, and I think even at the hands of Christians, unfortunately. And so regardless of your stance on it, it should have never gotten to this point. It should have never gotten to a point of lives being taken and just these brutal stories of people being abused and becoming victims because of them identifying as LGBTQ. Yeah, and there's certainly so many personal stories uh, that we could share from people that we know, that people we've heard their stories. And we're sure that as you're listening, you've heard many of those stories. But historically, really, the Christian church has done a lot to inflict pain on gay people. Uh, the whole kind of pray the gay away movement has really minimized people and ignored them and not made them feel seen uh, and really negated the way that they feel and the way that they see the world and really the way they've seen themselves ever since they could remember. And the churches often talked about, you know, being gay is a choice and said things like, oh, you're only gay because your father's absent and you have an overbearing mother and like all of this kind of pop psychology, pseudo psychology, pseudoscience explanations for why it is that people are same sex attracted or they, they have an attraction that is outside the, the, the norm of heterosexual uh, male female marriage relationships. And, and we've really minimized the gay experience in, in some really deeply hum dehumanizing ways. Yeah, and it seems like we have become comfortable just explaining away these stories for people who identify as LGBTQ instead of making space for them and hearing them and sharing the gospel through this identity struggle that they're having in their lives. We would rather be on the defense and call them out and really shame them and make them feel guilty for what they are experiencing in their life. Yeah, and this is all part of a broader sense of homophobia that mm. and hatred of the LGBTQ community that has been allowed to persist in the church all in the name of 
upholding the biblical view of sexuality. And just a couple of personal anecdotes on that. I remember sitting in a church service with a group of friends, uh, one of whom I believe is same-sex attracted. He never came out and said that he was same-sex attracted, but it was generally understood among our friend group that he was, but he wasn't, you know, ever going to be open about that because we were all conservative Christians, but he was our friend and we, we loved him. And um, so we're all sitting in this service and it was actually the sermon uh, that was the 4th of July patriotic service that came the weekend after the Supreme Court case where same-sex marriage was legalized. Mm. So People were real mad about that. Christians you, were real mad you about can, that. You can only imagine just the pastor the draped an American flag, you know, spewing a homophobic mm. sermon. And I don't remember all the points of the sermon, but I just remember like the main point of the sermon was that being gay doesn't make sense. And so all the points were like, it doesn't make sense biologically. It doesn't make sense societally. And there was a couple of other like reasons why it doesn't make sense. But then like the last point of the sermon was, and it just doesn't make sense. And you could like really feel the hate of the pastor that as he was preaching and he stopped just short of saying, ew, yuck. Uh, but not that much short of doing that. And I just remember seeing, you know, this friend like dart out of that worship center and into the parking lot and disappear that week. And I just, to this day, I feel mm. awful about yeah. that. Well, and that's where a pretty common joke among pastors would come out where they'd say, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Yeah. And just really poking fun at how is it that someone could even possibly identify in this way? Clearly, it's not biblical. And we took the opportunity way too many times to make fun of someone's struggle rather than taking the opportunity to show Jesus in the midst of it. And I've heard that joke way too many times from way too many pastors. And it wasn't even funny the first time. It wasn't funny the first time. And I remember sitting there like, oh, that's cringy. Why is everyone laughing at that? Especially when you know someone who has opened up and is struggling with this or is weighing back and forth. Why is it that I identify in this way? I want to be a Christian. And there's just so many layers within someone's own story to then hear a pastor just poking fun and making jokes and the whole congregation cracking up laughing. We have just missed such a great opportunity to actually share the gospel. Yeah, and it goes even worse than just making jokes about it. I remember another time I was on staff at a church and we were having this month-long series about, you know, sex in the Bible. And it was this kind of intense series that ran the gamut of marriage and divorce and pornography. And one of those weeks was homosexuality. And I actually coordinated for a friend of ours, his name is Beckett Cook, to come and speak on that week. And Beckett, he lived an openly gay lifestyle for a number of years. He was a set designer in LA, very talented, uh, very successful. Um, but when he came to faith in Jesus, his life turned around and he ended up at seminary. That's where we met him. He wrote a book about his experiences. We'll link to that in the show notes. It's a really good book that you should check out by Beckett Cook. He is just a a powerful voice in this space. Mm -hmm. 
and he's got cr- credentials, right? Like he's he went to yeah. Talbot School of Theology. He's a regular contributor to the Gospel Coalition. Like the dude is like more conservative than I am, right? <laughs> and you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have even known it by the amount of hellfire that came down on me, on the lead pastor, on you know all the leadership for basically quote having a gay man come and pollute the pulpit of our church. And that was just enough to make my head spin because mm. this was a guy who was preaching this, the same message about sex, the same understanding about sex as everyone else in that, that room right. would have agreed to. But because he was, quote, a gay man, all of a sudden it was like this taboo thing and they had all kinds of questions about you know, his sexual practices and all those kinds of things. And it was just like this really hate-filled feud uh, that was really just a debacle and just completely missed the point of that entire series and that entire message. Yeah, I remember being at church and I was so blown away by his testimony and I've heard his testimony several times and it is shocking to see the response of Christians in specifics to Beckett Cook because he's preaching the gospel and he's preaching a life transformed by Jesus and the Holy Spirit coming in and just completely rocking his world. And so to not just sit there and listen to him and take any of his backstory as something that is still what he's walking in now, it just lacks sense. Yeah. I just, <laughs> it lacks a brain. I just struggle with it, especially like you just listen to Beckett Cook and he's he's full of the gospel. He's full of the Holy Spirit and he's full of understanding that, yeah, the world accepts certain lifestyles and the world accepts certain ways of living that are counter to the gospel. And he recognizes that. And you're, he is such a needed voice for the Christian church as someone who walked in that life for so long and he understands it. It's just a shame that people won't even give him the time of day because of the life that he once lived. Yeah, and it's so crazy. Like, yeah, but are you still gay? Again, why is that the priority question? Like the people who are like, you know, the bastions of like sexual righteousness are like weirdly obsessed Mm. with other people's sex lives. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, it's just, it was just such a strange thing. So I think whenever we as Christians wade into this conversation, I think first and foremost, you need to understand the context. And that is the context of widespread and deep-seated homophobia, hatred, violence, and uh, dismissal of the LGBTQ community. And, and not just like the community at large. We're talking about individual people, people made in the image of God who have been harmed, some of whom I have actually seen it in their eyes when it happened. Hmm. Yeah, people with faces, people with names, people who have parents and siblings. Like it's just not a generalization of a population of people somewhere. They are actual human beings that we should care about. And even just the things that we have advocated for, uh, mostly in the past, thankfully, but sometimes in the present, things like conversion therapy, mm. where it's it's just awful. It's, it's not scientific and it's inhumane. Things like, you know, we're going to, you know, beat the gay out of you basically. And these therapies where they'll show you 
homoerotic images and then they'll administer uh, electric shocks to you or they'll uh, show you those images and then they'll give you vomiting-inducing drugs. Or up until recently, um, homosexuality was classified as a mental illness and so they'll give you you know heavy doses of antipsychotics with just horrible side effects and uh, none of these were ever shown to be an effective, you know, quote unquote treatment for mm-hmm. same sex attraction. Uh, and yet they have been advocated for staunchly by much of the Christian right. And a lot of that has gone uh, by the wayside, but it, it is worth noting that there are some within the evangelical movement who still support those kinds of things. That's terrible. That people would still think that's okay. I mean, they should have never thought it was okay, but now that we have more information and it's proven that it doesn't work and it's not helpful and it's dehumanizing and it's torture and it's pain, we should absolutely be against that 100%, regardless of the person's sexual identity. Yeah, but Christians never let a little thing like science and truth get in the way of what they believe. (laughs) Yes. Well, all that to be said, we, Dale and myself, hold to a biblical understanding of sex and marriage. And that is that sex is meant to be expressed within the confines of a lifelong marriage between one man and one woman. And we didn't want to have that be the very first thing we started this podcast with because one, people probably could have guessed that. Like they could have probably already known where we stand And too often, people want to start the conversation with, here is where I stand, and here is what I'm against. And we just, we didn't want to lead with that, and we want to actually start the conversation with how do we care about people, and how do we lead the conversation with Jesus, rather than leading the conversation with what we are strongly against. Yeah. And as we say that, we understand that that, you know, evokes a lot of emotions depending on what side of the issue you are on. Uh, Like, oh, if you're, you know, kind of staunchly on one side, you say, well, they sound really sympathetic. And on the other side, you might uh, say like, hey, well, I don't care that you're nice about Mm -hmm. denying the, you know, the goodness and the rightness of um, same-sex attraction, it's still bigotry. And we understand that there there are both sides that are that would likely come at us for that, and that's okay. Um, we think there, you know, there's space to disagree with us on this, and uh, we want to engage with that in, in a loving way. Um, but just for me, as I look to the Scriptures, and, uh, and, and I'm bound by the Scriptures, and my conscience is bound by the Scriptures, I don't see a way around it um, without really doing a lot of violence to the biblical text. And mm. so... That's where, you know, I stand on the issue that uh, sex is meant to be uh, something between one man and one woman in a lifelong commitment in marriage. Um, And I don't often lead with that. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think the first one is you probably could have guessed that that's where I stood on the issue of human sexuality. Like as someone who has been a pastor in conservative spaces, went to a conservative evangelical uh, seminary who is... Um, very much a Bible believing Christian like that. It, it makes sense that that would be my view. And I think the second one is this, and this is the more important one. I don't know if Jesus would have led the conversation with that. And that's because Jesus wasn't like a cultural warrior. 
warring against the actions uh, taken by people who are outside the people of God. Whenever we see Jesus get into like a fist fight with somebody, he never got into an actual fist fight with somebody. He just whipped a couple people one time. Thank you for clarifying yeah. because I was going to clarify for you. He was being a prophetic voice against the evils perpetrated inside the in-group of people who are inside the people of God. He spent a lot of time calling out their arrogance and hypocrisy and injustice. And whenever he was talking to people outside kind of the bounds of, you know, the community of the people of God, he was always way more gracious with those things. And um, he didn't harp on those things as, as though they were first importance because the, the thing of first importance was, was to know uh, about his kingdom and about his love for the world, even though the world is broken and sinful. And that doesn't mean he, he never called people out. I mean, you think about the woman at the well and in the end he did call her out, but that wasn't where he started. He had built this, trust with her and he was sympathetic with her and we don't want to ever compromise truth but we have to remember to hold truth and love intention at all times and sometimes those things feel like they couldn't possibly exist together like how can you love someone who is blatantly disregarding the truths of scripture but we have to and we have to think about that constantly because those things have to go hand in hand. Yeah, and even in that conversation that you mentioned with the woman at the well, he did end up calling her out for her sexual sin of adultery, but he didn't lead the conversation with that. He led the conversation with, I have living water that I want to give to you. And then as she began to ask and explore what that meant, he he then brought her to a place where in following him, it meant leaving the, the sinfulness of her past behind uh, in favor of something better. So even there, he didn't lead the conversation with you, you know, point, wagging his finger at her, but it was a start of a, a relationship and an invitation and a, and a loving invitation at that. Right. And as we approach this topic, I think it's important for us to be mindful of what's happening in the world around us what events have been happening and what is happening to the LGBTQ community that is important to their story, is important to their experience. And as Christians, we certainly don't want to add fuel to the fire. And I think to kind of paint this picture a little bit better, it's I can point to a few examples of things that have happened recently. I mean, in 2016, there was a tragic mass shooting at a gay nightclub in Orlando where 49 people died and 53 were wounded. These are people with names, with faces, with families. 49 people died. And it was an anti-gay hate crime. And before the end of that very same year, the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood came out with the Nashville Statement condemning the LGBTQ community. And it was signed by just about every prominent evangelical leader in America. And we're not going to bicker whether that was important for them to do it or not, but it, it feels a little tone deaf to do that in light of what just happened. Like literally months. For, like right. Leave it to the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood to do something so tone deaf. Yeah, to just put salt in the wound. And again, it's not that we want to compromise truth. We we don't. 
but we have to be mindful of what is happening and not come across as tone deaf to people who have very real stories and very real experiences. And if we want them to ever get to a point of being willing to walk into a church or even being willing to hear the message of the gospel, then we kind of have to be a little bit more mindful of them and where they're starting. Yeah, and that whole thing, it was just kind of like, hey, like, like someone gets murdered and then like someone stands on the side a week later and says, you know, well, they probably went to hell because they were gay. Like, is that really like the message you want to like, like mm. that's the response that you want to give to this horrible atrocity? Yeah. And to the family, like, yeah, your kid was murdered and it's, you know, they're going to hell anyways. Like, what? What is happening? <laughs> Why would that be our, our initial that's the knee jerk? Yeah. Right. Why would that be our very first response to someone's very real pain, heartache, and trauma is they had it coming. Yeah, I mean, and I don't think that that was necessarily their intent behind it. I think they had a document in the works, and then the shooting happened in Orlando, and they just kept sending it to the presses, and they didn't think twice about it. It was scheduled, and so then they just went through with it. But man, like, it just was completely tone deaf. There's no other way to describe it other than just completely heartless and tone deaf. Right. Because at that point it would just drive a larger wedge between the church and lost people in the LGBTQ community. Yeah. And so that was what, five years ago, but there's more recent examples, even just the, in the past couple of weeks, there have been some, uh, pretty terrible revelations about sexual abuse cover-ups and racial discrimination in the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention. And so that's been a running story. Um, but after some of those stories broke, it was actually the very next day that Albert Moeller, who is the president of an SBC seminary, and actually he's one of the candidates for the SBC presidency, he released a podcast highlighting a story about Coles and how they're celebrating Pride Month. And there was something about yoga pants, oh. <laughs> and it was basically condemning them for it. For wearing yoga pants? Yeah, like gay yoga pants. No, that wasn't it. But he okay. was. It was. It was wrapped up. There was. A, there was a thing about yoga pants in there. There was a thing about Pride Month, and then like really celebrating Pride Month. And it's just kind of strange that with within your own denomination, that there's all this just mayhem and madness that really needs to be addressed and spoken to prophetically, and you're going after coals rather than addressing those huge ills hmm. within your own tribe. Yeah, it feels a lot like the verse is about looking at the speck in someone else's eye and drawing all of the attention on that when you have a massive log in your own eye. Like, deal with that first. Deal with your log first before you then start attacking everyone's specs. Yeah. And I think it's just emblematic of the fact that we often have tons of grace for people who have other sexual sins or other sins generally. Mm. But when it comes to LGBTQ people, that grace is conspicuously lacking. Yeah, there's no room for grace. We are far more gracious to people who are struggling, even with just other types of sexual sin, like 
premarital or extramarital sex, like we tend to extend grace in those areas. Or people who've divorced from biblical reasons, uh, pornography, and as as difficult as this is, and it should absolutely not be the case, we even extend a greater sense of tolerance for those who have sexually abused somebody else more than we extend grace and tolerance to someone who identifies as a homosexual. Oof. I mean, that's true, but yikes. Like when you put, like when you put those things together, it's absolutely true that we extend much more grace and like, well, I don't know when it comes to issues of sexual abuse, um, but we don't have the same benefit of the doubt given to anybody in the LGBTQ community. And I will say too, when it, when it comes to other sexual sins, leaving aside sexual abuse, whether it's pornography or divorce for unbiblical reasons or premarital sex, I don't think what we're saying is that those people deserve less grace than what they get. Right. We're but, not saying that. But we're saying that the LGBTQ community deserves a lot more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we're not seeing hate crimes and murder over someone who had sex before marriage with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Like we're not seeing the same degree of strong opinions against a sin because the Bible is clear that sex outside of marriage is a sin, but we are far more mindful of the fact that those people need grace and love than we are to someone who is homosexual. Yeah. So I think all that to be said Uh, I don't think the gay people in our lives need to hear that Christians think that they're wrong. They already know that. Yeah, Newsflash, they learned that decades ago. Uh, I think what they do need to hear is that we love them. And I think what's more is that they need to hear that Jesus loves them. Yes. And that doesn't mean we change our stance on whether or not homosexuality is a sin But identifying something as a sin and deciding how you interact with that person are two completely different things. Regardless of anyone's sin, because we all have it, we all come with sin and baggage and a lot of skeletons in our closet. But each and every one of us is deserving of the same type of love being extended, irregardless of the type of sin that's happening in their lives. Right. So with all that in mind, I feel like There are a lot of common questions that come up, uh, not just during Pride Month, but around the issue of LGBTQ and the church generally that I thought it would be good for us to discuss. And I didn't prep you with these questions uh, because I'm going to get your raw and honest responses right now. Uh, So uh, rapid fire. I think these are questions that a lot of people ask uh, a lot of the times. Uh, So question number one, should Christians fight to abolish same-sex marriage in America. Your thoughts? How how about you give me an easier question to start with? Like, you really gave me the hardest question. There's only hard questions. I know. I'm just kidding. Um, this one, I think, is difficult in terms of where my thoughts land because I firmly believe we cannot hold non-Christians to the same standard as Christians. And before... Everyone gets mad at me. Hold on. The reason why 
we can't expect non-Christians to have the same values and focus in life is because we were all blind at one point. We were all blind to the truth. We were all deeply engrossed in our own sin. But the Holy Spirit, when he came to live in your heart, like your eyes are open to truth, you now see, wow, that is sin in my life, even though it's commonly accepted in our culture, even though it's commonly accepted in your family, and it's actually been something that for generation after generation, you've seen happening in the world around you, you are now able to call it what it is as sin. And that only happens because of the Holy Spirit. So everyone who does not have the Holy Spirit is still blind to those things. And they're operating on their own wisdom. They're operating on the best they can, which we all know is not very good because we need Jesus, obviously. But when it comes to actually advocating for policy within our country, I think there's a place for us to do that as Christians, but not out of the desire to have non-Christians start operating as Christians just based on rules and regulations because we've seen the scriptures tell us that's not how it works. But I think it's important that if we are going to begin to advocate for these things that are important values and truths in life, it's because we desire true flourishment of those around us. And we know that what God has given us and the truths that he has given to us and revealed to us and the way he's asking us to live is not just because we want to live by rules and regulations, but because it's by this way that we can truly flourish as a society. And so if there's opportunity for us to bring that light into our policies, I think it's important for us to do that. But we have to go into it understanding that it's not going to make people become Christians, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. And along the lines of that, as I just look at, you know, a Supreme Court decision is a Supreme Court decision. And so from a legal perspective, I don't know if there's much of a leg to stand on in trying to abolish same-sex marriage. And if I can compare this controversial case to another controversial case like Roe v. Wade, where we vote in such a way that, you know, people are going to overturn Roe v. Wade and abortion is going to be outlawed, I just don't think that there's legal precedent for that to happen. And even if there was, it's highly unlikely. And so I think there's a lot better ways to spend energies uh, with regard to the abortion issue is really building up communities and coming alongside women who um, are in need of assistance uh, with their pregnancies and really working uh, with impoverished mothers. And I think in the issue of same-sex marriage, not seeking to abolish it, but seeking to show people a better way through the way of Jesus. And that maybe that sounds like a cop-out, but mm. I, I, I genuinely feel that way that I don't know what, what victory we think we'll be winning mm. by campaigning against uh, same-sex marriage. Now, uh, I remember a number of years ago, I think I was still too young at the time to vote, where it was yes or no on Prop 8 to legalize uh, same-sex marriage in California or to keep it legal. I can't remember what it was. Um, yeah, definitely vote the way you think is right on that one. But I think the way things are now, 
I don't know what we stand to gain necessarily by fighting it. Hmm. I see your point, but I have a hard time suggesting that we should just sit back and let it be because we just can't really make any change. And I guess what you're, if I understand you correctly, you're saying it needs to start at more of a local level and that's where most of our energy should go, right? Yeah, and it's not that we sit idly by, but we, we our energies would be better served somewhere else. With the amount of energy it's going to take mm. you to try and overturn that, I think there are better victories that you can go after that are more gospel centered than legal centered. I guess. Hmm. Yeah, I still think there's a place for us to to push forward in our Christian convictions, but I I certainly understand what you're saying. I mean, it's the law of the land at this point. Mm, right. Is my sense. Okay. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. Okay. All right. Where should Christians fall on the issue of bakeries refusing to bake cakes for same-sex weddings? This one's a complex one that I don't know if I have uh, enough uh, legal knowledge of the Constitution to right. provide a coherent answer. Hmm. <sighs> So I will say in most situations, no, I don't think a bakery should be forced to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding if it is going to wound their religious convictions. So for I think they have a legal protection there. Yes. So I think that's where maybe there's a difference, right, is what should legally happen? Versus if I were the owner of a bakery, what would your advice to me be? Legally, absolutely not. You have the right to refuse service to anyone. Like if someone shows up and doesn't have shoes on. Yeah, and it's a slippery slope to force them. Yeah. So legally, we get into some real like shaky territory if we're going to start forcing people to do something as a private business owner. But regardless of the legality issue, should Christians stand firm to not baking the cake, whether the law's involved or not. I don't know. Or are we arguing about something that doesn't matter? I think that that one might be an issue of personal conviction. There's Mm -hmm. one uh, particular case that's on my mind from recently where someone came in and they were like, could you bake a blue cake and put pink frosting on it? Or I can't remember who was that. It was was probably reverse. A pink cake with blue frosting on it. And it was to signify their gender transition. And the bakery refused because they knew exactly what it was for. Um, but there was no it was just a it was just a pink cake with blue frosting on it. Like there was no message, there was no like groom and groom, there was no like any kind of in- insignia showing that this was a transition cake. Uh I don't know. That one seems a little more iffy to me. Yeah. Where even if you have legal protection, I say, just make the cake. It's just a pink cake with blue frosting on it you make 20 bucks off these people. It's fine. Like, like just make the cake. Like just like, don't, don't be that guy. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you, if you have to do a design where, you know, it's a groom and a groom or a a bride and a bride or, you know, whatever those kind of things, it, it, it would boil down to like what you're comfortable with. Um, I think we should make every effort to accommodate the requests of people who come in and would like to have a cake made if if I'm the owner of the bakery. That would be my posture 
And then there comes to a certain point where I would no longer be able to do that. And if and when that happens, I know that there are legal protections from the First Amendment that Mm. uh, would protect me in that case. I think I finally took a winding road to my answer. You did. (laughs) Good work. I'm happy you (laughs) arrived at an answer. I thought we were going to be here all night. No, we were just, we were circling the wagons on that one. How do you think that uh, we should feel about, you know, everybody and their mother changing their logo to a rainbow during the the month of June? And how would you feel if it was your company doing it? Like if I worked for that company? If you worked for a company Mm. that was doing it. Yeah. So that feels like a twofold question. Um, my first thought is it kind of feels like everyone's just jumping on the trend and it's unfortunate that something as heavy as pride month is just becoming trendy and people are probably doing it for the sake of sales and it's probably just coming down to a business strategy and that feels icky to me. I'm not for that. I don't think everyone should just be changing their profile to a flag because they fear any kind of negative comments or they fear any kind of backlash from people if they didn't make that move. And that's where it feels like it's at right now. If you're not doing it, then it's a clear statement that you're not for it. Did that make sense? It does. And I think that's the part that makes me feel a little bit squeamish about it. I think particularly as someone who works in marketing, I think the performative and compulsory nature of everyone changing it to a flag makes me a little bit uneasy. And I'm not typically one to cry cancel culture or, you know, I'm not the anti-woke police or whatever or anything (laughs) like that. But I think this is one of those situations where the kind of virtue signaling cancel culture Mm -hmm. thing is – a point of contention, particularly if you are in high levels of leadership in the marketing department of one of these corporations and maybe you fall a different way, I could foresee a situation where you would be discriminated against on those grounds, even though you're not trying to make a statement or be any kind of a way about it. Like you work for Coca-Cola, like you're selling soda, like Mm, this should not be intersecting with your job description and your uh, requirements for employment there. And I think that's where it gets into the realm of discriminating uh, against people who are, you know, heteronormative or whatever that um, is infringing upon your religious freedoms or pressuring you in in those areas. And that feels very similar to, it happened several years ago with Chick-fil-A, the, CEO of Chick-fil-A was asked very directly what Chick-fil-A's stance was when it came to LGBTQ. And as a company, they had said that they didn't agree with that because they hold to the biblical understanding of sexuality. And immediately they were boycotted by a, a large community. I think there was some like protest in front of Chick-fil-A and it really goes back to your point where they're selling chicken sandwiches. Why does this matter where they stand in this area? 
because we all want to claim tolerance, but we really don't want to be tolerant. We only want to be tolerant if you agree with us. And I think both sides are equally guilty of that. Yeah, and it's not even like Chick-fil-A was actively campaigning or had some kind of... No, they were just asked, and I'm sure that reporter was trying to create problems anyways, and so they were asked, and they answered, because it probably would have been just as ugly if they didn't answer. Like, they just, they couldn't have won that question, unfortunately. Yeah, so then there was the anti-Chick-fil-A people, and then there was the anti-Anti-Chick-fil-A Christian people who were responding, and they were buying, like, 10x the amount of (laughs) Chick-fil-A they were buying before. And the whole thing Chick-fil-A was never at risk of going out of business. Like, it was fine, but... Just the whole thing turned into a circus, and it was all just performative virtue signaling on every side Mm -hmm. of the coin. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily on the side of the person who answered the question, but the whole movement of these groups of people it just kind of turned into silliness and it's like what are we even talking about well and even the reporter asking i don't see how that mattered when it came to business it's not like they were refusing to serve any kind of person like it just yeah yeah and there are a lot of lgbtq people who are employed by chick-fil-a and who rise through the ranks of chick-fil-a and do very well in that organization right so there's no evidence of discrimination on their part exactly okay here's our last question okay um, what level of leadership should we give to those in our churches who are living an openly LGBTQ lifestyle or who are actively in that space, I guess? Mm. Um, yeah, that's a hard question. I think I'm going to... Hmm. <laughs> I haven't actually thought this one through that much, and I'm a little fearful of thinking on the fly about this one. Um, my initial thought is... In the same way that we should hold our leaders to a standard of living a life above reproach and living a life that is centered on Jesus and continuing to exemplify what it is to be a Christ follower, if there is blatant sin that you are willingly continuing to live in, regardless of what that sin is, They should not be in a place of leadership. And as we're specifically talking about someone who's living an openly gay lifestyle, understanding what scripture says and understanding that is sin, if they're actively choosing to continue to do that, I don't think they should be in leadership. In the same way, if someone in leadership is actively openly having an affair, they should not be in leadership. If they're having sex before marriage, they should not be in leadership. If... And I'm just listing off sexual sins because that's the topic we're talking about. If a leader is actively choosing to live that way and they have no desire to change that, I don't think they should be in leadership at all. At all. Like can't be a greeter, can't work with the kids. So when you say leadership, you're saying a greeter? I'm saying what level are they? Oh, to volunteer at a church. Well, I just... You can define it any which way you want to. Well, I say if you're saying leadership, leadership, they are leading other people. I don't necessarily know if someone saying hello to you at the front door is saying you're leading other people. Could they lead the greeters? <laughs> now you're getting real. Could, could they schedule the greeters? You're getting real detailed here. These are the questions that people have. Yeah. And when it comes to operating your church, these are very important questions. I guess, yeah, if there's any leadership role that you know they are actively choosing to walk in sin, I don't think they should be in a leadership role. 
Yeah, I don't know. I struggle with that one. And I think I have particular people in mind, like, as I think through that question, that I know are... So is that... So as you have these people in mind, because I don't have anyone in mind, and obviously that always changes the whole scenario, right? When you actually know someone who is volunteering at your church. So as you have one of these people in mind, is it a blatant sin they are living in, understanding it's sin, understanding God has called them to something different, and they're refusing to live other any other way? Or is it something they're still walking through? I would say that they have a different view. Than the biblical view? Y- yes. But I mean, but there are other churches that have a different view. You know, they're affirming and non-affirming churches. So they would fall under the affirming theology of that. And so to their mind, it wouldn't be a sin. And that's to me where it starts to get a little bit complicated because there is stuff at the church that I'm a part of, like, you know, line three of subsection A of the statement of faith where I'm like, well, yeah, I don't know, I, I might I might have a different view. Or when the the pastor preaches something, it's like, oh, I would interpret that passage differently. Yeah, so I don't know. I think that's where it makes it a little bit mm-hmm. more nuanced for me. Because at the heart of it, like, is this a person who is following after Jesus in the way that they believe to be true based on their understanding of scripture but then at what point do we do we yeah how big is the circle i guess is my question that becomes really messy because i've heard a lot of people say well the bible means what it means to me and the bible means what it means to you no the bible has truth that we are called to live by and there is not opportunity to just claim my own truth and you claim yours. Like, that's not how the Bible works. True. But there are areas of great dispute, say, like women in leadership, where if you're an egalitarian, complementarians would tell you, yeah. hey, you're outside scripture. And so you are just throwing the Bible away and you're not following Jesus and you're probably not a Christian. Well, I think that's a little bit different to say you're not a Christian and to say, I cannot in good conscience put you in a place of leadership. Those are two different things to completely disregard your salvation. like that. That's really heavy. No, that's true. But um, you could go to some churches and you as a woman, they would say it is against scripture and it would be sinful to place you in a certain level of leadership. And I know that because that's happened to me. And you would disagree Right. Based on your interpretation of scripture. Right. And th- and it's not just my personal interpretation. No, of yeah. It, there's, a there's, whole, a, there's a body of right. work behind that. I would say there's something similar going on there that I stand on the opposite side of. Okay. But what level of tolerance am I willing to have for that disagreement, particularly when it comes to having this person be a part of the church and uh, be part of the mission of Jesus? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I think that's where, like, the question is, I mean, is probably not a fair question. Yeah. It's not, and it might even need to be looked at in terms of role by role. So leading the greeters might be different than being a youth pastor. Like, like there's even levels of leadership. And so I'm going to say that your question to me was unfair. And <laughs> <laughs> that was the point of all the questions I gave right. to you. So these are horribly They're difficult, all... unfair questions that require a case-by-case yes. management. Yes. And they require a lot of grace and love while holding intention truth. Yeah. How do we do that? 
beats us. Mm. Well, I'd like to think we've been helpful. You're just like, whatever, we don't know. I I am here to answer questions with more questions. Mm. Just like my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, gosh. He would ask you more questions, and then he would just tell you stories. So if I asked you more questions than you asked me, and I told you some stories, I'm growing to be more like Jesus, right? Goodness. <laughs> I can't. Well, again, this conversation uh, obviously is very complex. And um, unfortunately, it hasn't been handled very well by the church. And maybe it, it hasn't been handled very well by us in this conversation. <laughs> we'll let you be the judge <laughs> I of was that. Thinking that. So we hope that if you didn't land on the same space as we did, um, that at least you can still feel like you can have a conversation with us or be Mm. conversant with us and that we haven't completely shut you down or uh, dehumanize you in any way. Um, So if you have questions or even if you just have a bone to pick with us, we would love to hear from you. Send all the bones. And uh, I mean, as you can tell by the conversation, we certainly aren't perfect and we're still working Mm. out this stuff like as we go. Yeah. Uh, And though, you know, we feel strongly about the views that we have, um, we're always open to discussion. And even if we don't end up changing our own views on something, I know I'm certainly open to changing the way I hold a view, uh, especially if that helps me to love and care for somebody else a little bit better. Thanks for listening to the Her and Him podcast. If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week. Also be sure to head over to our website, hernhim.com, and you can get show notes for this episode, read our blogs and other helpful resources. We'd also love to hear from you, so you can email us at herandhimblog at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we will see you next time. Finding uplifting news in today's headlines is often like searching for a needle in a haystack. At the Story Behind Podcast, we believe in the power of finding heartwarming tales and are happy to share empowering stories with you every week. Get inspired by the note a waitress received from a patron dining alone. And even hear about how one VIP passenger made a hardworking pilot get emotional before his flight. To start listening to the Story Behind Podcast, visit lifeaudio.com.